Well, last week we were moving through Exodus. We're still in Exodus. We were at Exodus 20. That's where we read the Ten Commandments. And if you recall from last week, I know it's kind of hard sometimes to remember what we had for breakfast. But last week in the Ten Commandments, we saw that there's a prelude to the Ten Commandments. That, that They don't, don't just begin with, you shall have no God that God's before me. The Ten Commandments begin with God saying, I'm the Lord your God, um, Yahweh. I'm the God who loves you. I'm the one who's delivered you out of bondage, out of captivity. And because of this grace and mercy and this relationship I brought you into, therefore you have no other gods before me. We saw that. And then in chapters, because we're skipping over them, chapters 21, 22, and 23, uh, God delivers to Moses uh, and his people uh, more commands. But at the very end of chapter 23, right before what we're going to read, God, God says, but guess what? I'm bringing you into the promised land. I'm going to deliver you into the land of promise. And then we come to our text, a text that was meant to help them have confidence of what God's promises were. And they mean to give us confidence as well. So let me ask you, what gives you confidence in the Christian life? How are you to know that God has truly pledged to be gracious to you, that you belong to him and, and he belongs to you? What we will study this morning will help answer those questions. See, when God says he will be our God and we will be uh, his people, these aren't just words from his lips that somehow faded over time into the echo chamber of, of eternity. No, he has written them down. He's written them down and he's given us a document, a document called a covenant. And this covenant gives us great assurance and it causes us to celebrate our relationship with God. Exodus 24, we're going to look at just the first 11 verses of that chapter. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told all the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel um, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hands on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. This is the Word of God, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word um, for us. Some of, these, some of these words sound so familiar to us. 
the giving of blood, uh, the, the, the oath of a covenant, and being your people. And, and yet, uh, we need to hear afresh this morning that we can rest in our assurance that you give us through this covenant and the covenant to which it points, the new covenant in Jesus Christ. By your spirit, enliven our minds this morning as we study your word. Amen. Well, last fall, something amazing happened to my family, the Middlecoff family, something we thought probably wasn't really ever going to happen. We never even gave it much thought. But it began in the springtime when our landlord said, "Uh, sorry to tell you this, but I'm selling the house in the fall, and you're going to need to move out, look for a new place, something we've done before. But it just creates a little anxiety. But then in the summer, I got another phone call from the landlord, and he's like, well, if you pony up like a really huge down payment, I could sell the house to you. And I informed him, well, that's probably not going to happen. Uh, I think the Patriots have a better chance of winning today than that happening. <laughs> but then my brother called and he said, he said, how about I give you that down payment? Like, give it to you. I was like, overwhelmed. And with that began the process of really trying to make this home purchase happen. Uh, and you know, when you're, you never really know for certain that, that you're really going to own the property. So many things could go wrong with surveys and deeds and all of these things, attorneys, right? Um, but there was a day when things came to us as assured that this was our home. And what day was that? Some of you gone through it. It's called closing. <laughs> Closing is where you gather around a, a, an old, big conference uh, table in some attorney's office, and you've got your attorneys, and the seller's got their attorneys, and then right at the head of the table is a special person from the, from the title company, and they, they do the closing. And what do they do? They take all the documents that you agreed to beforehand, they bring them out, all revised and ready to go, and they read through them, and then both parties sign off on them, And at the end of it, you've got this huge, giant stack of documents that you've signed, all guaranteeing that after that last check is written, that the home is really yours. On that day of closing, there was great celebration for my family. We had a meal. We didn't really have a meal with the other attorney. Um, But... But we celebrate this is our home. And now, that, and now that we have a home, though, it's like, you know, it's like stuff. There's stuff you got to do, obligations to keep it up and such. Anyway, we have assurance because of these closing documents that the house is ours, that the title is clean. And these assurances allow us to truly celebrate something we thought we couldn't celebrate before. Now, the passage we read is similar, but it's far more delightful. The assurances it provides are far greater, and therefore the celebration is to be far more celebratory. In the passage, God sits down with representatives of his people, kind of like in a closing office, and he he declares that that he will be their God, and then he gives them the words of the Lord, the the stipulations that we see in in verse 7 is called the book of the covenant, so that all the people can... Sign on the dotted line. Really, it was, wasn't so much signing as it was a sprinkling of blood. God says, I'm there with this blood. You are my people. This blood has sealed the deal. And when it's all said and done, the people are to rest in the assurances 
that this covenant provides, and they are to celebrate. You know, these words we read this morning, they're invaluable to us today. See, they do something for us that, that all of God's people need. They give us assurances so that we can celebrate our covenant relationship with God as God's people. See, these words weren't just recorded for those ancient people who first signed off on them. They're written down and scripturated for us today. This is a part of a covenant that we, we belong to. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of need these words. See, they declare to me that God's love for me is unconditional, even though I tend to doubt it. God calls me to embrace a life that honors him. And guess what? I, I tend to forget God's call upon me. God says he provided peace offering for all my sins, but I have so many that I begin to wonder if perhaps he might just change his mind. Ever had those kind of thoughts? I'm sure you had. We need to understand and embrace what this passage shows us, that God in love enters into a binding written covenant. He binds himself to his people and his people to him. And because we have these assurances of this covenant that it gives us, we're, we have great cause for celebration. And we're going to investigate that this morning in four areas. We're going to look at the call, the commitment, the ceremony, and the celebration. First, the call. The big idea here is this. Through God's covenant, he calls us to come to him. In verse 1, God says to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and, and 70 of the elders of Israel and, uh, and worship from afar. Aaron is Moses' brother. Uh, these other two guys, Nadab and Abihu, they're Aaron's kids. They're going to be priests someday. Yeah, they're going to mess up. Things won't go well for them. But for now, everything's okay. Uh, the 70 elders, they're the ones who represent uh, the people. They're the leaders. They're going to help, help the people keep this covenant that they're going to sign. In, in, in ancient Hebrew, the, the number 70 was a, it was a number of, it represents perfection, uh, totality, comprehensiveness. So, so in a sense, as those 70 were up there, the whole nation, it's as if the whole nation is gathered up there with them. The representatives come up to the mountain, but then only Moses comes even nearer to God. In verse 2, he says, the people shall not come near. Remember, Moses has a special calling as a mediator. Uh, he's a prophet. And you recall, remember what happened after God spoke and the people heard the Ten Commandments? How did the people respond? They were like trembling, and they said, uh, Moses, why don't, uh, why don't you go uh, and, 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 inter and interact for us? Why don't you be the one who mediates with us? And so God is just condescending to their desires. But the important point that should ring in our head is this. God says, come, come up, come to me. Don't lose the significance of this. God Almighty, creator of all things, perfect and glorious, calls out and he says, come. Here we see God's compassionate desire to bring fallen, messed up, selfish people like you and me into a relationship with him. Know this, if this was not God's disposition, none of us would be saved. We'd be content to live our days in vain pursuits, all the while living in darkness. God calls to us. It's his call upon us. Later in scripture, in the opening of the prophet Isaiah, God says these amazing words. He says, listen, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. 
There's good things when God calls us to come to him. A hundred years later, Jesus said to all who are listening, come to me, all who, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. God is a God who says, come. In the covenant, God welcomes sinners to be his people. God pledges to be their God, to love them, to cherish them, to protect them. Now, may we delight in this truth this morning. Uh, may we see that it, who it, the people that God makes us to be through this covenant. May we celebrate. On days when you doubt and you feel uh, far from God or your worth isn't there in Christ, remember the covenant and celebrate God's call to you to come. That's the coming now for the commitment. You know, a covenant isn't a covenant unless both parties agree to come together. In verse 3, Moses returns from being up on the mountain, and he declares the requirements that he just heard to all of the people. And what do they do? They say, yes. Look at verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Do you notice the word all there? All the people with one voice, all the words we will do. You know, I, I truly believe that these people were earnest in their reply, that they were joyful on that day. They, they heard the words of the covenant and they joyfully said yes. They embraced with all the joy they have that, uh, the, the, that God pledges to be their gracious, life-restoring God. They embrace his commands that he's given him. You know, at the closing table that, of that day when we purchased the home, there was mortgage documents. These documents stipulated that the lender would actually loan us the money, that they would not change the interest rate. They would not penalize us if we made prepayments. But we, too, had obligations that we accepted joyfully. The document that we signed stipulates that, guess what? We've got to pay the property taxes on time that we have to have homeowner's insurance, that we cannot let the home fall into disrepair. Now let me ask you, did we sign those documents begrudgingly? No. We gladly accepted the stipulations. They were fair. And without them, we would not be able to enjoy our home. So too, the stipulations of the covenant that the people of God agreed to, they were fair. Without them, they would not be able to enjoy a relationship with God. They said yes, with great joy. The covenant imposes obligations on the people. The people that God has saved by grace have been incorporated into his covenant, and therefore they're, they're now to conduct themselves as the covenant people of God. So to us today, when, when, when Christ calls you to himself... It comes with a call of obedience. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote of this in, in his book, The Cost of, Dis of Discipleship. Here's what he says. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Die to self, die to vain dreams, and earthly comfort, glory, possessions. 
Jesus said something similar. He said, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So the covenant and embracing it involves a commitment. With one voice, they all say, we will do all that you say. It's true, we need reminding of our covenant commitments, don't we? When you and I came to Christ, we came into the covenant people of God, and with that we embraced the commands of God. But at times we find ourselves, can we not, kind of far from living out the commands of God, far from walking in the ways of Christ. I think it's helpful this morning that we see this covenant. It's a, it's a call to come back, to be reminded of God's grace towards us, but also the necessary obedience that comes with being a child of God. So take a moment to look at your life lately. In what ways does what we just discussed challenge you this morning to become more like Christ with each passing year? Are there things in your life, attitudes or actions or habits that are contrary to the covenant obligations that are upon you? So we've seen the call, the commitment. Now let's look at the ceremony. That takes place in verses 4 to 5. In verse 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord for the people, which becomes the book of the covenant. We see that in verse 7. Then he builds this altar on the mountain. Then in verse 5, he sent young men to wrestle up a herd of oxen. Uh, First, some of the oxen were offered as a burnt offering. Uh, In the burnt offering, the blood of the animals drained out into a basin, and then the entire animal is consumed on the altar. Next, there was a peace offering. Here, only the fatty portions of the animals was consumed on the altar. The rest of it is a peace offering. It was to be eaten by the priests uh, in the precincts uh, of, of, the, of the altar. Uh, it was a meal with God. And then in verse 6, we read that Moses took half of the blood, he put it in the basin for later use. And then the first... And then the other half, which was right there in front of him, what did he do with it? It says that he, that he um, sprinkled the altar with the blood of the oxen. What did that do? It signified that God is present. God is here. This is his altar. He's marked it apart as his. I'm, I'm here in this place with you, so to speak. I'm at the signing table. Then in verse 7, we read that Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. See, earlier they had verbalized, yeah, we will do it, right? That's kind of like before you actually sit down and closing, all right, I think that's a good price. I think we'll pay that interest rate. And now it's all been written down. Now is the time that they must uh, assent to it. And what do they say? They says, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. This is a formal covenant ceremony. The words Moses recorded, now called the Book of the Covenant, were were read in this ceremony. God wrote them down, or Moses did, so that future generations would understand this covenant. And we have them today preserved for our benefit. And what did the people do? How did they respond? In verse 3, they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. But here they add, and we will be obedient. You know, I doubt they said that begrudgingly. I don't think there was a bunch of young Hebrews with their fingers crossed behind their back. 
This was a day of celebration. God had pledged in writing and he's pledged in blood that he is their God. And they pledged with their voices in unison that they will gladly obey. Now look what happens in verse 8. Something amazing. What happens? Well, those basins that were filled with blood, what does Moses do? Verse 8. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. And he said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. God calls the blood the blood of the covenant. The people receive the words of God and then they're sprinkled with the blood of the covenant. The blood upon them simplifies, signifies something marvelous that God has bound himself to them and they are bound as well to God through this blood. In the ancient world, sometimes two parties would come together and they would agree on something and they would each cut themselves and, and they would drop the blood on the ground, therefore unifying themselves. We are, we are now blood brothers. We are now, the, the life is, um, is, is shared in unison between us. Here what we see is God is saying, I'm binding myself to you and you to me through this ceremony. Now, Many people today are offended by blood and the notion of a sacrifice. I get it. I, too, don't like the indiscriminate taking of an animal's life. I don't think that's what's going on here, though. But let's think it through. It's not that something is wrong with God, that he commands animals to be slain for our benefit. God does not delight in burnt offerings as if he's some sadistic eight-year-old with a penchant for torturing small animals. That's not who God is. God, in his mercy, allowed animals on it for our behalf because we need, we need the sacrifice. He allowed that for a time to be substitutes. Otherwise, it would be a human being that would need to be slain because the sins are human sins. Now, if you're here this morning and you feel quite certain that you could teach God a, a lesson or two in animal cruelty, allow this truth to humble you, silence you, um, God himself poured out his own blood for you. See, God knew that it was inadequate for animals to substitute for human beings. So, so, the, so the sacrifice of animals back then pointed to the future work to come of Jesus Christ, the perfect uh, sacrifice. The, Jesus himself, when he offered up the Passover meal. Remember what he said at the Passover meal the night before he's betrayed? He took the cup of wine and he said, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus knew that his blood was going to be poured out on that cross as a real and true substitute for me and you. He knew what was going to happen. Please, if, if you feel as if God is some sadistic man, uh, being because he, because he de demands uh, sacrifice, these animal sacrifices, know to this, that God himself went on the altar. He shed his own blood for us. Now, one of the shortcomings of the Old Testament covenant was that the animal blood spilled for the forgiveness of sin had to be done over and over and over. Like every day there were sacrifices going on. As the writer to the Hebrew states in the New Testament, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So every day, eventually, as, as this 
the temple gets built, the tabernacle, every day, sacrifice of animals over and over and over. God, God allowed it to be efficacious by his grace, but truly it pointed to the, the need of a far greater sacrifice, the work of his son, a once and for all sacrifice. And my friends, we live in that age now. We, we don't live back then. We live in the age in which God's grace, this, this covenant with his people in the Old Testament is kind of like a plant. In the New Testament, this covenant blossoms and, and, and with great beautiful flowers because of the work of Jesus Christ. Because of him, we have a once and for all sacrifice for our sins that, that brings us into this covenant where God seals himself to us and we are sealed to him. Now, back to those worshipers who've been sprinkled with the blood of the covenant. They would have known what was happening. Uh, covenant ceremonies, these, these were not uncommon in the ancient world. The spilling of the blood symbolized uniting of enemies into a covenant of blessing. The blood that was on them, picture that. A million people coming before Moses and getting splattered with blood, signifying their membership and acceptance of this covenant. It signified peace with God and belonging to him no matter what. And think about it. The blood would be on them for a really long time, wouldn't it? There's no outdoor showers like some of you have at your houses. Oh yeah, it would, it would dry in their hair and on their skin, and eventually it would kind of flake off. But what about their clothes? be permanent, Right? There was no OxyClean back then. Think about that. And they only had one pair of garments, right? That lasted for 40 years as they wandered through the wilderness. Every day they would look, and yes, it might fade a little over time, but every day they look and they say, I've been marked by my Creator. I have proof that I've been brought to the closing table. I have assurance that my relationship with Yahweh is secure. I can see it right here. Isn't it true? Aren't there days in your life where you'd like to be able to look down at your Levi's and see some faded blood that, that, that reminds you that everything's okay between you and the Lord? That you're fine, that, that the covenant, you're a part of it. No matter what you've done that day or that week, you, you, you truly are treasured. You're, you're a child of God. We don't have that. We have a better covenant to celebrate. In many ways, we belong to the same covenant, but it's far richer now in Christ, more fuller. In the Old Testament, God promised this new covenant that would come. No longer would his people have to teach each other what obedience is. God would send his Holy Spirit to dwell in each and every one of his people. The Spirit would empower his people to live out his commands, to love God, to love one's neighbor. Think about the greater assurances that you and I now have that Christ has inaugurated the new covenant in his blood. In the old covenant, they would sacrifice over and over for the forgiveness of sins. They would cleanse their consciences for a moment, but trust me, and Hebrews talks about this, as soon as they walk away from the temple, guilty thoughts would cloud their minds. There would, no be, there would not be a long-lasting 
cleansing of one's conscience. Not so today for us. Christ died in once and for all. Death for you. Though we sin daily and need to repent daily, our consciences should be cleansed and clean. Why? Because God has given us a once and for all sacrifice and atonement in Christ. Christian, if you find yourself falling short, as you find yourself being prone to discouragement in your Christian walk, remember the covenant of grace that God has brought you into. He has said, come. And he continues to say, come and come again. I have cleansed you with an everlasting salvation. Yes, repent. Yes, recommit in obedience. But have a clear conscience. Think that through. God wants you to have a clear conscience. You know, many think that to be a good Christian, you need to walk around always feeling guilty about something. Why is that? That's not the way of Christ. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is a clear conscience with great joy and delight and flourishing. Talk about freedom. But for some reason, we forget that this covenant that God brings us into has such an everlasting cleansing that goes to the root of the problem. It's so deep and so wide that you are truly cleansed of everything. My friends, our God wants us to have clear consciences. Think if you truly had a clear conscience, how how that shackles would come off of you. Be free to live a glorious life. The covenant that we have in Christ is meant to give you a clear conscience. How does knowing this change you? So we covered the call, the commitment, and the ceremony. Now, real quickly, for the, the celebration. The Lord calls representatives of the people to come up to the mountain to share a fellowship meal with him. What? That's kind of crazy. That's amazing. Come on up. Let's have a meal. In verses 9 through 11, we read that this covenant meal about it. In, in uh, Moses and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, the 70 elders, they went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay a hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. First, they saw the God of Israel. They saw him, but they didn't really see him. See, the Bible presents two seemingly uh, opposed Opposite realities. No one can see God and live, and yet some people have seen God and lived. In verse 11, we read that God did not lay a hand on them. God's grace abounded to them. He wanted them to behold his glory. But when they recount this picture of God, they they can't even begin to describe God. All they can do is describe what? The the pavement underneath his feet. That's about as... It seemed like some... Sapphire and like some clearness of heaven. What is that? I don't know. 
God met with them. They saw him in some mystical yet true way. But then they didn't fully see him. But consider it. Oh, to have been there, right? Been a part of that. The covenant that New Testament believers enjoy is new and better and better in many ways. One of them is this. We have seen God. What the New Testament makes clear is that Jesus is the divine Son of God, fully God, fully man. So much so that when Philip lamented that Jesus was leaving and going back to heaven to be with his Father, he said, he asked Jesus, everything's okay, but just, just show us the Father. And here's what Jesus said. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. You've seen God. He's the perfect representation of purity and grace and mercy and justice, kindness and everything summed up is in Jesus. You've seen him. But even those closest to Jesus, they have time, uh, at times they have a hard time realizing that. <laughs> Just show us the Father. Jesus is so patient. He's like, seriously? <laughs> All right, let me give you a lesson. And we need a lesson too. We too are able to see Jesus. Yes, not with physical eyes, but with spiritual eyes. And those are the better eyes. Sorry, Dr. Chewinski. As Jesus comes alive to us in the scripture, we see him, we delight in him, and we love him. And through that type of seeing, we can enter into this covenant relationship. So Moses and the leaders see God. Then what do they do? They share a meal with God. Verse 11 says they ate and they drank with God. Why a shared meal? Because in the ancient world, sharing a meal signified being welcomed. It signified acceptance and solidarity and, and friendship, that there was peace and love in the, between the parties who were gathered around the table. It's similar today, right? Consider the school lunch tables all around America. Who sits at your lunch table says a lot about what you think of them, about your relationship with them. And who's not at your lunch table, well, that says a few things too, right? You remember how awkward it was that first day of the school year walking in and trying to figure out where you're going to sit. And then, oh, there's Julie. Okay, I sat with her last year. I'll sit at her table again. I won't even have to ask, right? In the ancient Near East, a covenant ceremony was often consummated with a fellowship meal. Two different parties that were at odds with each other agreed to come together for mutual benefit and blessing. And then, and then they would share a meal. It signified acceptance and favor and friendship and love and care. Which is why Jesus was harshly criticized by the religious leaders in his day, remember? Here's what we read in Mark chapter 2. And the scribes of the Pharisees, they're the hyper-religious ones who look down on others self-righteously. When they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? 
See, these religious leaders, they prided themselves in their righteousness, which is really a self-righteousness. They would never associate with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. But Jesus did. Why? Because Jesus loves sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. That was his mission for coming to earth, is to seek and to save the lost. Not that he approved of their lives, but he wanted a relationship with them that would, in the end, save them and change them. Jesus continues to share meals with sinners as a sign of solidarity and acceptance. The night before Jesus went to the cross to pour out his covenant blood, he initiated a covenant meal for his people to celebrate every time they gathered in worship. He said he wouldn't have a drink of the fruit of the vine again until he, until he comes with his kingdom. But you are to share this meal each and every time you gather. Each and every week we gather at this table. We eat and we drink a fellowship meal with the Lord. Jesus is present with his covenant people. Not physically, but spiritually. Via the Holy Spirit dwelling in his church, in us. In a true yet mysterious way, Christ communes with us. This is not an empty ritual. Some churches don't even ever serve communion, or they do it once a year or every quarter. I, I'm, I feel the, the biblical command is, as often as you do it in remembrance of me, this is, uh, let's do it as often as we can. If Jesus really is present with his people at this table, then why withhold it? Let's do it every day. So this meal signifies what we just studied in this passage. God says, come. He welcomes us to this table. And in our coming, we profess that we belong to the covenant community. This is why you don't do this in your home by yourself. And as we come forward, we joyfully commit to be obedient to the book of the covenant. And when we eat the bread and drink the wine, we profess that God's very son gave his body and his blood for us. That we have been sprinkled with Christ's blood, marking us as forever belonging to him. Every Sunday we celebrate this covenant meal. When we do, we, we do it with joy. At least we should. I'm not saying you don't repent of something before you come forward. But in your repentance, there should be joy because this table signifies that you are to have a clear conscience. <laughs> if after communion you don't have a clear, clear conscience, I permit you to come through one more time. <laughs> All right, I'm joking. But you get the point. My friends, this meal tells us that, that assurance is ours, that we belong to God and God belongs to us. And because this covenant binds us together, nothing can ever change that. Let's pray. Father, it's, it's too good to be true that you initiate this covenant with broken, miserable people like us, 
People who do not deserve your mercy and grace, but that's what mercy and grace are, things that come to undeserving people. With joy, we accept the, the, the covenant commands to, to love you, and to love our neighbor, to live on this world as people who know you, people who are a part of your mission. That can be hard, so we thank you for what this meal signifies to us this morning, that we have great acceptance. We belong to you. By your spirit, you are making us each and every day more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.